This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to episode 47 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, still the most unassuming podcast in the business. This is part two of a two-part episode, so if you haven't listened to episode 46, I highly recommend listening to that episode before listening to this one. A couple of bits of news that have dropped since the original recording. Dark Side of the Mind from group member Matt Haberfeld now has an official Kickstarter date. Mark your calendars for October 29th to go into the dark. We also mentioned that group member Josh Mills has signed American Steel, but we couldn't say who had signed it. That announcement has been made, so I'm happy to say that Maple Games will be publishing American Steel with a tentative Kickstarter date of July 4th, 2019. Art for American Steel will be done by Quan Chai Moria, who's also one of the VIP guests for Unpub 9. Now, back to the discussion of game assumptions and when to break them. So let's move on to the next assumption. The space you are playing in is not relevant to the structure of the game. What? Like the physical space, so... Yeah, so the physical space you're in does not matter when it comes to the rules of the game or anything like that. Oh, like the 3D space. Uh, Like... like, So so it's the space on the table or the space around the players. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think I stumbled into this by accident with Kodama, uh, because it's a game that's different if you play in a round table versus a long table or a, uh, a square table. Uh, you could run out of like playable surface area pretty quickly <laughs> if you wanted to play a particular way. Laser Riders explicitly uses the the table boundary as part of the the play space. So playing that on a different table has a uh, pretty different experience as well. That's the most kind of clear cut way I can think of to violate this is just to say that the the table and maybe the the objects on it are part of the game's environment, the game components. There is an old game. Uh, I, I played once in college, uh, in, I remember this distinctly, in the lounge area of, uh, of, of like my quad, called Fairy Neat. It's a, it was a tactical minis game about fairies, so it was a one-for-one scale war oh, game. Oh, wow. The, <laughs> pawns, the pawns you had were the actual scale that they would be, and thus all of the terrain was the books, the couches, the, the, the floor, all that stuff. And the fairies could fly, so they could fly up on top of the couch and then, like, like do a dive bomb. Uh, it was it was wild, and I don't think I ever played it again, and I don't know if I've met anybody who has played it uh, before, but that, that was one. I, I, I still remember that as an inspiring thing of what I had in the back of my mind when we were working on Flying Taxi 2, to, to capture a little bit of that real space interaction. Yeah, and then you, the games where you're getting up from the table or you've got multiple rooms, obviously that can be very important to the structure of the game. If you're trying to play Diplomacy and you're in a very small room and you cannot leave it, uh-huh. it suddenly it becomes a very different game than if you're in a house with lots of privacy. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a game of um, Betrayal uh, at the House on the Hill where the where once the haunt was revealed, that player didn't leave the room to read their thing and, and, and suss out what they're supposed to do next. If they were... If they were stuck in the same room, uh, that would be a very different experience. <laughs> All right, so our next assumption that we got from the hashtag, a game played in silence cannot be social. Let's talk about the mind. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> that, that you just That's the end of that. I think, actually, the mind, and then... And I think that game is. was almost deliberately made based on, let's break this assumption. Let's make a game where there's... Uh, tons of interaction and no interaction at the same time. 
no traditional interaction. But you all stare at each other, and you very, very slowly inch your hand forward with a card, mm-hmm. and then one person lays it down, and everybody groans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Ludol- uh, uh, speaking of Ludology, uh, uh, Jeff Engelstein mentioned the, uh, the lean. When you have a 100 or a 99, you lean way back in your chair yes. and let everybody else play for a little bit. Yeah, it was really interesting listening to that and hearing them talk about the original German rules versus the English rules. Yeah, that was odd. Because apparently you were not allowed to do any sort of signaling in the original German rules. And it was much more negatively viewed. Yeah. Because you literally were not allowed to do anything except play a card. Right. You were not allowed to signal. You were not allowed to shift or do anything. There's a, there's a, and I think that points out a difference between banning communication and banning talking. And I think the mind was sort of an exercise in uh, how much can you communicate when you're limited, uh, when you're restricted from this one very common me- method of communication with one another. And, and what, are the, what are the meta rules that you start building around that with like the lean or the, the size or the gestures or the uh, avoiding, avoiding eye contact? What, what are the new uh, vernaculars that, that you establish when you can't, just can't talk and you're trying to work towards a shared goal? Yeah, and it's, they're not played in silence, but the, the number of games with limited communication. See, Hanabi mm-hmm. and Mysterium and... Um, concept. Yeah. Concept. I mean, you go back to just old stuff, Pictionary, uh, Charades. They're, it's, just, it, it's fun to be denied or constrained in your method of communication and still try to convey an, an idea uh, to your friends. Like, I think that's a very old and, and tried-and-true game mechanism. Uh, to work around, and, and the mind just happens to be the, uh, a very recent one that, and uh, a very successful one, I would think. Whether you care, whether you care for the gameplay or not, is a d- different matter. But uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting uh, sort of exploration of, of a very old and uh, well worn type of game design. Okay, so a game assumption that is, I feel like, is increasingly being broken lately is that the box is there only to hold the game. Certainly, you've got a number of things. Even in the groups pipeline that mm-hmm. incorporate box into gameplay. Everything I want to talk about is a spoiler. Oh. So I can't... Like in a legacy game? Uh, sure. Like in that, <laughs> the, there's a few escape games that have oh, things. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and there's yeah there's a, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's yeah. that's really tricky people are doing with the okay. game box recently. I, I, it's a it's a small spoiler, but but I but I think it's one that that's. Fairly common, and, and, and you don't even know which game is going to be relevant in. Okay, so one of the Escape Room games, which I will not mention by name, it actually uses uh, graphical elements on the box as uh, as a uh, measurement device for for certain for certain puzzles. Uh, so the the width or the height of the barcode that's on the back of the box is actually relevant because it is a very particular uh, dimension that that will be relevant for like cutting out a window in a piece of paper so that you can reveal the the cipher on on the other side of the the book or something. Finding a hidden image on the box is another thing that that comes up on occasion. And I will say no more <laughs> on that matter. <laughs> I was thinking of Cards Against Humanity, <laughs> where there there is a card in the box. Like and and I don't mean in the box, but you have to cut open. Cut, oh, yeah, the you box. have to like take the box apart to yes. find it. That was a very limited, just kind of a haha. Let's see if this flies type of experiment. But yeah, and well, even along with those lines, there's the the risk legacy, the yeah. the card underneath the bo- underneath the. Uh, it's only been out for 
five like, years. Yeah. Yeah. Six years. Redact it. Sorry. Redact it. It's, 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 out. it's totally up to you, Burke. I'm not talking anything about it. It's just, it's there. <laughs> I, I it's your choice whether to do what it says or not. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone that I've talked to that says that they've done it, they, they said they've been disappointed. And, and, and so it's made me reluctant to, to peek at it. I'll never, I'll never complete my Risk Legacy game. All the players that I was playing with are, are long gone. So I'm like tempted to just take apart all, all the pieces and, and use them for prototypes. And yet that one envelope, I'm very reluctant to open. Partly because I can't really salvage any components out of it. I, I know for sure that the same way I can like take out all the pieces. Uh, but still, gosh, I, I, I'm a rules follower. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to his talk a little bit since I watched it in preparation for recording this, and he made the comment that there's a rule in that envelope, and players will hate it, ah. and yet still do it, as opposed <laughs> to any other almost any other situation where it's like we hate this rule, let's not use it, uh-huh. right? Let's house rule it out. They'll be like, well, that rule was there, we have to do it. Which is just, is, huh. is very interesting psychologically. I wonder if it's the time investment that, that compels people to, to follow this rule after everything they've gone through. That's interesting because people will disobey the rules to destroy stuff, right? Oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Huh. And they'll be like, this rule makes this game terrible, but we have to do it because the rules say so. Oh, that's... Wow. Uh, so ultimately, who is the one destroying the game but the game designer? Like, it, like, Davio, in the end, is the one who is destroying your game rather than you. <laughs> oh, wow. Because you're choosing to follow his directions, executing whatever it is. <laughs> I just thought that was a really interesting psychological twist on following the rules. Yeah, Risk Legacy has a lot of that where you... Maybe you can't win this round, but you know that this envelope... Will unlock if you do a thing that, and you're like, well, I'm out of the running for first place, so I'm just going to do this thing, and I'm going to go 100% in the wrong direction so that we can unlock the envelope and do something fun next time. So that goes back into into divergent gameplay. Like the the reward you're pursuing there is not necessarily winning the game, but is to discover things. Yeah, yes. we just bounced off the bottom assumption there. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The goal of the game is to win. Is the assumption. Uh, and it is possible to win. Oh, true. Right. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. A game. It, a game is winnable. And I think that uh, that second part is one of the things that I see cited a lot. It's a really common game assumption: is that there's an there's an outcome, mm. and it's also one of the easiest to just kick away because every arcade game, pretty much that's ever existed, is play this until you lose. Tetris. So mm-hmm. you cannot right. win them technically ever. You can get the highest score, but you that's can beat everyone else who's played. Yeah, that's set by you, right? The game doesn't. You don't win, right? You you still lost. You just lost later. Yeah, yeah. It's more uh, of an endurance challenge. Yeah. So that's, that's the second half of that is I think it's commonly assumed, but it's also commonly broken. But the first half is super cool. Let's say that again. The first half just being that the the goal of the game is to win, mm. and like you, the example you just gave of Risk Legacy is a yes. a great great example where people will play the game to do something else. I've seen a lot of Magic where players will construct a deck just to explore what this very strange interaction does in mm. their deck, knowing that there is very little chance it's going to be viable in standard competitive play. But they want to see when uh, they get all of their little Voltron pieces out in play, 
what happens. Who like how does this interact with a with a deck of another type? They want to see. Uh, sometimes they just want to see an opponent's reaction to this thing coming together, and you make an infinite combo that makes a bunch of infinite goblins, but they ultimately don't do anything. Or you make infinite mana, but you have nowhere to actually actually send it. They just want to demonstrate that they could have done it. Yeah, it's like you might win one time in thirty, but that once is going to be ridiculous and memorable. Oh yeah, and, that, and that's kind of what they're going for in, in that case. So almost a performance. Yes, and I've played in a tournament. This is back in the 90s. So Magic had just released Ice Age. Whoa! And so we're, we're talking really, really long time ago. And so this player had bought, you know, he had a Time Walk and a Time Twister and the Wheel of Fortune, all the Moxes and the Lotus. Holy cow. And he had the card that made the deck work was the Zuran Orb, which you could sacrifice a land to get two life. So basically every time he played a land, he would take one damage from some enchantment he had. But then he could tap it and then sacrifice it to get two life back. And he just sat there for 15 minutes, just going through his deck. And he was like, you have to shuffle, because I did Wheel of Fortune. And I was like, I'm never going to draw the cards. You're just going to time walk and Wheel of Fortune again. Like, And so he just wanted people to give up while he went through his deck over. He had no damage in the deck. It was nothing but a cycle. And he, it, he was successful. I gave up and walked away. And I guess that was, that was good enough for him. That is... Uh... Wow. We keep coming back to this, you're not playing right, yeah. situation. Huh. On a little less structural note than that, a few years ago I know there was a game called Why First. Oh, yeah. Where each round you only got points if you were in second mm-hmm. at the end of the round. And the winner at the end of the game was the person who had the second most points yeah. after yes. all of the rounds. Which is definitely breaking the assumption that you want either the most or the least, yeah. depending on what whether points are good or bad. There's another game, and I think it's called Cleopatra, but um, the winner gets entombed, <laughs> and the second person assumes the throne. Wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some others. There is, I, I forget, it's a one of Reiner Canizia's auction games. I think it's uh, High Society or Hoity Toity. I think it's maybe Hoity Toity. It's the one where... No, it is High Society. Yes. It's the auction game where you want to buy a bunch of stuff, but if you're the person who has the least money at the end of the game, you are removed from the running to win. And yeah. And it's whoever, whoever's you have to You have to be the person with the most stuff who does not have the least money. Right. And balancing those two things uh, is, is a, like the entire point of the game. So uh, a couple other kind of directions you can go with this one. First is party games that have arbitrary mm. point endings, right? A large number of the sort of pitch some stuff or combine some cards and, and judge which combination is better or charades variants. You just play until a number of points that's written in the rule book, but in practice, people play them until they don't want to. And the goal is not to win. The goal is to, pl- to play it, keep playing this game until you don't <laughs> want to. That's the goal. And those are a, a common victim of the not a game uh, argument, but they <laughs> kind of fall under this for me. And then the 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 second kind of direction you could go with it is uh, role playing games, Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons. You don't win, you you advance, you advance, but you don't win. You never, mm-hmm. and you're not winning over the other players. And as the DM, you're not winning. Um, you never win as the DM, <laughs> <laughs> but you always win, and that's the part <laughs> um, yeah. Winning is definitely an abstract concept. It's like they're ready to have fun. Okay, then. We all won. Yeah, there's no outcome in D&D. You play it, 
indefinitely, and the outcome is eventually someone moves. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, but in that, I have heard of people completing their campaigns, sure, uh, and 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 that being such a rare opportunity to do that, that's worthy of note, and people like ooh and awe about it when, yeah. whenever it actually happens. And, and, and to me, that. That has ultimately been like the mythical victory state of D and D. For sure, it's like reaching the conclusion, the natural organic conclusion of a campaign without the outside interference of moving or jobs or what have you. We also have games like uh, Fiasco or The Quiet Year or uh, any of these other games that you play for a session and then the session's over. Mm-hmm. It completes, but uh, players didn't really didn't really win. Players or characters in Fiasco <laughs> yeah. uh, didn't, didn't really win, but but there was an ending. Uh, maybe without an outcome uh, in the traditional sense. Yeah. Uh, um, the one thing I think, uh, if, if advice, out, outward advice to designers if they're pursuing something like a party game, mm-hmm. I, me personally, this is just me, I've heard about stories of real, like, odd players who will engage and, and join in a game, of a party game or a storytelling game or something like that, where there are explicitly rules that have points and a victory state in the rule book, and the and, and so they will pursue whatever course is available to them to win the points and achieve victory, regardless of whether anyone's having fun doing so. Mm. Uh, they're like ruining the entire experience for everybody else. There's magic circle and social contract stuff involved with that in general, but uh, without getting all that academic about it, I, I, I would say that if you're designing a party game, and you and you feel like it needs to have points or some kind of end game state. I, me personally, I want you. I would rather you commit to this being a party game and not mm-hmm. not feel pressured to have an, an artificial decision for an end game state. Like if you're making a party game, let it be a party game. Don't feel compelled to make points or victory states just because there's assumptions that say that you have to have that in order to be a game. Sure. People are having fun playing your game. That's cool. Let, let them play yeah, till dinner time. Get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. There, there's certainly an impulse as a designer to start designing, and sometimes you got to stop designing. Do you want to introduce some of the ones that you wrote down, or do you want me to introduce them? Um, sure. Well, I'll, I will pick one from the list. Okay. The number of players is defined at the start and cannot increase. This is my favorite thing. I love it so much. The Thank you for of, writing this. The number of players... Is defined at the start and cannot increase, but can decrease. So we talked about so player. Your, yeah, so there's your assumption, right? You mm-hmm. cannot add players to the game in the middle. And the, the subversion of that would be the number of players is de- is not defined at the start and may increase, but cannot decrease. <laughs> you will play forever. So, so this game is the Borg, and gradually more and more people are involved with it. It's like, uh, what was that tag variant? Uh, where you stick stick together popcorn ball st- oh. like you tag somebody and <laughs> oh yeah it's like, and then the whole big group of people is running around becomes a whip yeah <laughs> you're like a human katamari ball yeah yeah. yeah yeah there was a game that was so juvenile and people were playing in like high school and college a lot and they just called it the game as soon as mm. and they I think they would just look at you and say oh you just lost no. Or but, something like by that. the way, everybody who listening, you did just lose the game because we are talking about it. Oh my god. <laughs> it's just, it canceled again. Coming. Canceled twice. Twice in one episode. Podcast is canceled. 
Um, so um, I, when I thought of this, the first game that came to mind was Flux, because Flux is one of the few games that has just drop-in, drop-out players. Right. You know, So you, you explicitly play this while you're waiting for people to arrive at game night. And, you know, if the game isn't over yet, there are your two cards. You have just as much of a chance as winning as everyone at the table. <laughs> it's true. It's oh, true. yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe my, my least enjoyment of that game has been when I've approached it with the strict parameters of a typical game. Like, mm-hmm. everyone's, mm-hmm. we're sitting down and committed to this. Oh, and oh my God, we're committed to this. <laughs> uh, but but if I if I approach it more loosely like that, if, if it was pop in, pop out, I would like there there are five minute increments or ten minute increments of that game. They're actually pretty fun. Yeah. And if I could just like distill that experience to just I'm playing this and when I feel it's interesting and I'm gonna pop out when I uh, when I don't. Yeah, when it becomes you know draw seven play one, you're yeah. like I gotta read all these cards, but I can only play. No, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, draw seven, play one, hand limit of zero. Yes. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. That's the stuff. <laughs> uh, but so, there, are there other games? Um... I think Drop In is great for video games, and I would really like to see board games that have. Oh, you came ten minutes late, but you know how to play. Get on in here. Let's do this. Uh, I think that would be a really nice feature. I don't know how to work it into a game, but when I do, I won't tell anyone because it'll be my game. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are some games where it's like, you know, there's a series of rounds, and yeah. if you join after round three, we're going to give you the equivalent of the worst score, mm. and then mm-hmm. you can continue playing. I was playing, um, we were playing Mars Open. Oh, right. Right? Yes. Which is basically a series of golf holes with, like, paper football style flicking. Oh, fun. And so I I showed up after, I think, three holes, and they just gave me everybody's worst score, <laughs> and then we continued playing like it was no big deal. Oh, that's mm-hmm. fun. And you did not lose. I think you did fairly well. I think I still lost. <laughs> right. Well, well, lost not memorably so, so it's fine. Yeah. Only yeah. in the sense that par was like 20 points. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, a par two, and we, yeah. we routinely got sixes and sevens. Everyone lost. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I've been in, in one or two pitch car games where someone joined in late and they just put their car, like, think behind last place car um, or, or, or parallel to it uh, and just... Hop in, play because it's that's a very that's a very fun game, it, and it can go long, so it's understandable yeah. that someone could could come in a little bit late. Yeah, and still want to play and play for the majority of the game. Most of those party games that we were talking about, with maybe the notable exception of Times Up, mm-hmm. don't have so much progression to them that players can't drop in and drop out relatively easily. And I think a couple of them explicitly allow for players to to drop in and drop out. Oh, uh, what's the so like um. Trivia games, I feel like, are are pretty mm. are pretty uh, modular in this in this sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That like you you pop a question and any number of players can 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 participate for that one question or two questions and then they they got to go cook dinner or they got to wash dishes or something and and they're out. Yeah, they can at least participate even if they if not necessarily if the game has a a defined win condition like mm. with some wages you need to be around to bet yeah. trivial pursuit you need to fill your pie, but if it's just a very casual just asking questions, then absolutely you can pop in and pop out. Sure. In any kind of team game, uh, something like code names, you can just say, "All right, you know, you're you're on this team, so now it's four on three, But it's not a huge detriment to the team with three. Yeah. Um, so you can certainly contribute. Unless you're the only person, like if it's two players on each team and you leave, then 
the other person on your team is kind of out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> and for that, I apologize to the people at Gen Con. Oh. <laughs> wow. I misunderstood a text and started a new game, and then five minutes in, I was like, I have to leave. Sorry. Oh, oh no. I felt so bad. <laughs> All right. Any other assumptions from your list? Um, oh, players must start on an even playing field, and the game must be fair. Ooh. Uh, I think we've, we've seen some, we're talking about war games, the ones that are very strictly historically based uh, tend to present a scenario where the imbalance of power is uh, is reflected in the setup of the game. So so you, you play Re- American Revolution, the British Empire is going to be significantly more powerful than, than, than the Americans, but sometimes there will be models for uh, the advancement of the American forces over the, uh, over the course of over the course of the revolution. Any other examples where, where it's explicitly unfair and, and imbalanced, at least at the start? I really do wonder about the games that are so strongly asymmetrical, whether it's coin, whether it's, mm. it's root or vast or something like that, how much they have just worked to make everything even versus letting the players self-correct as the game progresses. Because this was another thing that Rob actually mentioned in that talk, is that, especially with something like Risk Legacy, you design... 80% of the game and mm. players design the last 20% and if you're not willing to rein in the player who got stronger then they're going to get, keep being stronger and that's not a fault of the game that's a fault of the players it's bad design on your your 20% of the game yeah <laughs> so like Cosmic Encounter has that quite a bit Piro Latka has gone on record saying uh, balances for wimps <laughs> uh, so like he, he like he explicitly made aliens in that game that that are quite powerful, and it's it's up to I, I think the design standard that he established isn't so cavalier as he as he presents it, but because uh, I think he he presented aliens that were explicitly overpowered, but they were overpowered in a way that was clearly understood to to even a lay player who's just coming into the game. Like there isn't something subtle that sneaks up on you, but it's just like sneakily powerful. It's big and boisterous and, and and very broadly powerful, and so everyone knows to not trade with that player or ally with them or or to prohibit their movement in some capacity. And that that is a, a type of unfairness that people seem to enjoy in that game. Yes, until uh. the one person says, "I'm going to ally with them anyway," oh. and and yeah. So, but that's a, that's a social failure at the game table, not not necessarily. Or it's a social success because <laughs> <laughs> they've right. determined that that person's friendship is worth more. Um, no, <laughs> I think we've seen which player is which here. Um, another uh, any collectible game violates this pretty explicitly. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right? The um, richest player can just buy a good deck. And their money is not in the magic circle, right? Oh, hell no. Um, so, uh, their deck is just better. Yeah. Um, they may or may not win because of that, but their deck is explicitly better than yours, potentially. Yeah. And then, if we want to go into academic esoterica, uh, I think the Landlord's Game or Anti-Monopoly, one or the other mm. of those, had... Some of the players were landlords or uh, landowners, and some of the players were renters. And if you were a renter, you get to be you get to lose. Uh, <laughs> you, you get to lose. So basically, the game is bad for you, uh, and that was the the point of the game. Oh. Yeah, um, all, the, all those kind of games that take monopoly and explicitly unbalance the players at the beginning to show. Like, hey, license. Yeah, to, yeah, to show... I'm an artist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look. 
<laughs> that's the that's the game. Yeah, those um, those moral games from back in the day, like um, mm-hmm. with uh, snakes and ladders. The, oh boy, those like that took you on the path of morality and and the demonstrably unfair things that may occur with, through no fault of your own, just by roll of a die. Um, but I think um, I mean, there's something to be said for co-op games in this in this regard. Being, oh. being like, yeah, the whole point of those is that they are unfair to all players equally. And if that counts, then that is a type of unfairness. But I, I think in this case, we're talking more that that one player is unfairly advantaged over the others. Yeah. Oh, there was one role playing game. I, no, no, was it was it a role playing game or, or maybe, maybe yes, Archipelago. Oh, um, oh, I I played that. The the I think the first player rule there is is that whoever is the richest player. Is that is that from Archipelago? I feel like I've heard of that. I don't know if it's the game. Um, that... Well, Archipelago has. A feature that emerges where the players that are not winning are not incentivized to keep the colonies from rebelling. So if you so there's like a crisis and you have to play like you have to feed this many people in order to stand up all your workers to take actions. But if I'm not winning, you're paying all of it because I don't care. That leads into a, another assumption I wanted to talk about, but I think. The game Daniel was talking about was Dog Eat Dog? Dog Eat Dog! That's the game. Yeah, yes. where um, one one set of players is uh, colonizers, right? Yeah, the, the, the richest player at the table is the colonizer. And, uh, I, think, I think that's one of, the, one of those games that, in a way, forces you to uh, directly acknowledge your own place of privilege amongst mm. the other players and, and forces the other players to, to acknowledge it uh, uh, against you for, for better or ill. But the unfairness of... Of perhaps real life infects yeah. uh, or, or inflects the uh, the gameplay there. That is a very explicitly unfair game, um, <laughs> and in for for some some sense of the word fairness, I guess players definitely don't have the same amount of control over what's happening in that game and the, the same amount of influence over what they're able to do. But when you were talking about Archipelago, that brought up... There's a, a common... I always talk about semi-co-ops on this show, and I have to do it again now. Do you, though? I do, because the <laughs> assumption is all wins are the same, and all, all losses are the same. Mm. Oh, okay. Right? And that's one that I see violated most often in semi-co-ops, where mm-hmm. the, even though there's there's multiple loss states, they're, they're kind of rank-ordered differently, either explicitly... Or uh, implicitly, by the way that the rules are structured. We're saying explicitly a lot this podcast. It's a very explicit podcast. <laughs> the most explicit to, podcast. Ever ever this one. So, can I don't know? Are there cases other than like a semi co-op where there's ways of winning and they are different, like not just points, right? But yeah. like there's win paths or loss loss yeah. paths that are. Well, in case anybody's not familiar, why don't you quick explain that series? In okay. your choice of semi-co-op. Sure. So the, the easy one is Dead of Winter. If you don't complete your personal objective, you lose. But people treat the loss as a higher-ranked loss if the group still completed the group objective versus if the group failed the group objective, even though that's not that's not a rule, right? That's yeah. not explicit in the rules, but it's it's implicit in the flavor because everyone lived. So it's... It feels like you're more feels selfless. better. It feels like you, you've done a selfless act whenever yeah. your personal objective fails, but the group uh, objective succeeds. It does. Uh, it, it would be great if you could do both, but I think they, they've engineered that whole experience to, yeah. to be one where it's pretty hard 
it feels achievable, but in the end it won't happen. Yeah. And thus you feel this sense of pyrrhic victory that, that you have sacrificed for the colony to survive another, another winter, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is the, ultimately the experience they were going for. Uh, they've just kind of hidden a little bit of that under, under, under some mechanics. Yeah. A much more like prosaic example that has less experiential, but a little bit more, more in, in the theme too. There's a card game from Japan. Uh, that's like Lovecraft theme called it's very oddly spelled. So, Fram, R F R A M, Riley, the 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 city under the sea in Lovecraft mythos. So Fram Riley, whatever, however you pronounce that. I think you got it. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. But in that game, of course, there's madness as a as a metric of of something in that game. But the idea is that you're trying to build up a whole bunch of points. Great, cool, uh, by playing cards. It's a very abstract sort of sort of sort of situation. But there are uh, positive and negative cards that you can accumulate. Should Anybody have positive points. Even if it's just one player, the person who has the most points wins. But if everybody is below zero, then the person who has the least points is the one who wins. So you could be sandbagging quite a bit. uh, And as long as you keep the one positive person down to zero, or at least around there, uh, you could could easily win. You could uh, shoot the moon, which I Mm -hmm. guess is a whole category of of this type of thing. Uh Yeah, I think that's a that's a, a definite kind of direction for it. Is if if one of the win conditions just is spectacular in some way, right? That's spe- like it's, turn it's, a spectacular loss into uh, uh, into a win. Yeah. yeah, people will value that more and maybe go for it. This is kind of like the Magic the Gathering example from earlier, right? You want to do the combo <laughs> yes. win because the combo win is really good. It's better than a regular win. If you just want regular wins, you would just build a good deck. But yeah. you want the combo win. There's a certain emotional cost to that. That it's going to be different for, for different people. Uh, so in, in that case, that player, the emotional cost for their loss is insignificant compared to the the potential or the actual win. Uh, whenever they make it work, one out of thirty times. Any other assumptions that we want to talk about before we finish up here? Podcasts about game design should have an end. Now we have to see. So the premise of the, <laughs> the, premise of the show is. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're going to be here forever. Uh, let me put in my two weeks' notice. <laughs> All right, settle in, folks. All right, seriously, anything else you guys want to mention before I wrap it up? Uh, I think that's, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think ultimately this is, a, this is a useful exercise for game designers to, to pursue. I, I would advise that if you do subvert one, of the, one assumption, especially if it's a very foundational assumption from a lot of games, for example, in Why First, the, the whole thing about going in second, being the thing that you're trying to do. It's something that is so different than every other game that you've ever played There's that they have not included any, any other mechanics in that game. It is, it is strictly moving pawns as a race on a track, and whoever's in second scores and whoever's ultimately second, second most points amongst all those races is the winner. Like, that's the whole game, and they did that intentionally and wisely because the fundamental subversion of assumptions in that case was so so different that to add anything else to it would have made it, like, one step too complicated. Yeah, that's definitely going back to something that we've mentioned on previous episodes. If you're going to deviate from the standard, try to stick to doing it once in your game. Otherwise, it's going to really throw people when they have mm-hmm. to... When they have to figure out that, okay, the cars go the wrong direction and you can't move them and yeah. I need to be in third place to win or something <laughs> like that. Are there examples of games that have gone too far and were unsuccessful due to their esoteric nature? 
I, I dare say that anybody who has approached Magic the Gathering and, and hit a brick wall trying to parse all of the 25 years of, of minutia and rules and interactions that uh, have built up over the years, I think it, it, that, that tends to break people's brains unless they have someone who's, who's like shepherding, shepherding them into the, the game. And so it's very easy to come across somebody who's coming, who's making a very weird deck in that case. I'm like, what, what, what? Yeah, actually, so I, I explained that I played in the 90s. Yeah. And I took probably a 15, 18-year break. I, I still play occasionally, but when we do a draft, I don't know any of the features of the current set. And it is embarrassing, the types of decks that I put together. There was one where... The only card I had that was any good was the rules lawyer, which made my... It made everything invincible unless you could remove the rules mm. lawyer. But the entire deck relied on me getting that card out. Oh. So it was that one in 30 yeah. I win and the other 29 times I lose. But it was fine. I mean, I have fun with it. But you... It's a game that requires a lot of out-of-the-game yeah. keeping up with the game. You you can't just sit down and play Unless you're you're really immersed in the world of magic and the meta and what's coming next and what yeah. what happened six months ago and what is the yeah. best deck and how to beat that deck and how to beat that deck and it's just too much for me. Yeah, I think I think it's telling that that, that we're, we're I think we're struggling a little bit to think of of, of games that have done too much because they they tend to not really make much of an impact. Yeah, it's easier to think of ones with with genre assumptions rather than game assumptions. Uh-huh. Because uh, a lot of like really complex games nowadays rely on some familiarity with like for you to learn uh, some of the more complicated Euro games that are coming out. If you've not played a worker placement or a deck building game, you don't have a scaffolding for those rules, so you have right. to learn the mechanism. And I think any of those could be presented almost as an example of too much. Yeah, like you know, you bring someone that hasn't played, they're they don't have like you have to play Dominion as a primer to play deck builders. Deck builders, and, yeah. you have to play Agricola as a primer to play worker placement. And if you're playing one of these, you know, giant fifty different cog Euro games where there's these different mechanisms, you can't play that from scratch. Right. The, the um, games where you, where you have to like if you're hoping for a shorthand explanation of have you played Agricola? That's Agricola. Have, have you also played Feast for Odin? Have you also played Steam? It's kind of like all three of those. Oh, thank goodness you played all three of those, because that makes this teach very easy. <laughs> and if you haven't, oh crap, I have to teach all three of those games now just yeah. to play this one. And then some of the games, when they do small things that violate one of those, you know, you're playing a deck holder, but you draw eight um, or something. Or you don't or shuffle. You don't shuffle. Yeah, or the, you... the deck order matters. Yeah. Like in, uh, and, um, and, yeah those can do some, some things. Um, I don't know if it makes them unsuccessful, but it definitely makes them harder, but... Yeah, it's it's funny that the the line between a hook and a I don't know a complication is, yeah. is very tenuous. Like cause sometimes you you can say it's like this, but it does this other thing, and that's a great selling point. And and sometimes I don't know, it just opens a can of worms. Mm. Uh, I've certainly come across that in my prototypes sometimes, where I'm trying to do too many things at, in one game. Yeah, I know an old deck building prototype of mine broke I think one rule too many and made the deck part of it, deck building part of it. A little bit too confusing for people in terms of how you upgraded cards and things like that. You know, had the had a system where you upgraded cards by actually discarding them out of your deck and putting the new card in, oh, rather yeah. than discarding to the discard pile and adding the discard. You know, mm-hmm. new cards don't immediately go to your discard pile, and that was that really threw people who were big fans of deck builders. Yeah, 
I've seen a couple. I've seen a couple people try to make deck builders where the physical placement of a thing on a board um, reflected what you could buy and add to your deck. So it's as if you're traveling to a thing and buying the buying the card from that particular place. And it, it's an assumption that I. But, but you say that you you say ooh, and and you're joining many many other designers who have also thought of that and said ooh. And yet I haven't seen a complete design that does this successfully yet. And I'm, I'm very curious, what is the hindrance there? What, what do they keep running into that never really quite pushes it over the, the finishing line? Because it seems like a very simple hook to, uh, to achieve, but there must be some kind of technical thing that, that's keeping it from really flourishing. Hmm. But uh, anyway, yes, assumptions. They're great to subvert, but do so carefully. <laughs> okay. All right. If folks want to get in touch with you, how can I do so? Start with you. I'm on Twitter, at Matt Haberfeld, and you can spell my name by looking up the podcast, and it'll be there in text. <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter, where I tweet too much, at Daniel Solis, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-S-O-L-I-S. And I'm also on Twitter, where I also tweet too much, at, at Even Weirder Move, and if you forget how to spell weirder, spell it the other way. <laughs> You'll find somebody, I'm sure. I am Follow at- everyone. But- yes. Yeah. <laughs> I am at Apollo Continuum, and check the show notes for spelling on that, because uh, <laughs> I'm tired of spelling it, and eventually I'm going to have a better handle, but not yet. Uh, to discuss this episode, please go to our guild on Board Game Geek. We would love to hear about assumptions that you make when you were designing or when you are playing and how people have broken them. Go to podcast.gdfnc.com, and that will redirect you to the guild page. Uh, we love your feedback. Uh, we also have a group Twitter account that you can follow, at GD of NC, which stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. That'll do it for this episode. Good night. Bye.